The end of the world started slow and ended even slower. We looted department stores and grocery stores and dollar discount stores, but what we brought home each night never made any sense. We made love to strangers while sober men took drinks. We squared away old debts and told off our supervisors and burned our homework and sought revenge, only to see the sunrise upon our sins once again. And again. And again. The first mandate put into effect to prevent the end of the world was the number of times we were allowed to flush our toilets each day. Because what would kill us all wasn't aliens, or the Chinese, or a meteorite from the heavens, but thirst. This was sometime after the rain had stopped, but before the fire started. The number of family members in your household equaled the number of flushes you were permitted every 24 hours. Congress declared that the use of water as part of our waste management system was, well, wasteful. So we dug ditches in our backyards, we built outhouses out of wood and scraps, and when the number of flushes permitted was reduced from the number of family members in your household to just once per day, it was no longer uncommon to see your neighbor squatting outside with his morning coffee and the dog. It'll get better, the government promised, as our thermometers burst and our yards burned. We as a nation have never been stronger, the president declared. When we started high school, showers were limited to once a week and could last no longer than five minutes, then four minutes, then three minutes. This meant if you were part of a family of four, you showered once a month on rotation, unless your older brother hogtied you with duct tape on your designated shower day, which happened to fall on the Friday before junior prom, and you were forced to pick up Carly Cushing wearing a fetid combination of teenage body odor, your dad's cologne, and a dry soap that sold for $50 a bar accompanying you in the car. They called it the Temporary Water and Agriculture Conservation Act. We simply called it Twaka. When Twaka was introduced, no mobs formed outside. The shelves of our grocery stores remained fully stocked. We continued to order venti coffees and open bar tabs and shop at farmer's markets on Sundays. We ignored the overhead alerts spelling out the problem, serious drought, save water, right before our eyes as we drove 75 down the 101. Johnny told Carly Cushing he loved her while slow dancing to Justin Timberlake. We thought it was inappropriate since he'd left his prom date alone to cry in the corner after commenting on the way she smelled. Carly told Johnny a story about how her great-grandfather proposed to her great-grandmother while dancing to the same song. All this dancing is making me thirsty, Johnny replied. And Carly showed him a flask. We all took a sip. It was clean and cold, just as we'd imagined. And that's when Johnny said it, that he loved her. Carly said, that's just the water talking. When the governor of California declared an official state of emergency, the lower west coast hadn't experienced rain in 432 days. Arizona hadn't seen rain in two years. Decorative fountains went dry, their pools drained, crops died, gardens wilted, 
Any market branded local went out of business. Our faucets sputtered and splashed, the pipes protesting each time we tried to have a drink or take our allotted shower. And every time we'd wait with our hands on the cold water knob, our fingers crossed, our lips bargaining with God, begging him for the water to come just one more time. Still, we remained calm. We went to class. We showed up for work. We went to Leslie Bishop's Halloween party wearing scarves and hats and jackets, and whenever anyone asked, what are you supposed to be, we'd say, cold. Livestock started dying off. Wildfires consumed our trees and our grass and our forests. Famine was rampant. Artists painted murals of green meadows and fat cows and cloudy days on the sides of our buildings so their children wouldn't grow up in a world so yellow. But this didn't stop us from binging on our favorite TV shows. We didn't turn down invitations for lukewarm cocktails without ice on Saturday nights. We got good and then we got better at pretending everything was fine. And then production of bottled water was halted without notice. Cases sold on eBay for $100, $200, $500. Mining productions at aquifers were doubled, then tripled, drilling faster and deeper because a hydrologist named Richards, Val Richards was his name, believed there was an untapped reservoir of fresh water hundreds of miles wide. He was right. We found it seven miles below the surface of the earth. But the temperatures outside kept rising and the wildfires kept burning, so we kept drilling for more. The American way. Ten miles, twelve miles. At 13.2 miles, we hit more water, salt water, and contaminated hydrologist Val Richards' fresh water reservoir. Pretty soon, an unopened bottle of water jumped past the value of the American dollar, and doomsday nuts and conspiracy theorists like Carly Cushing's own father were our new 1%. Their basements and bomb shelters and panic rooms worth more than Fort Knox. When our teachers stopped showing up to teach, when the principal canceled graduation, we'd play who could stay outside the longest to pass the time. It's unclear if Carly was trying to impress us when she agreed to play, but she stayed outside from sunrise to sunset in 110-degree heat. She was the last woman standing and suffered third-degree burns on her arms, neck, and back. The doctor said she would be scarred for life. She said, cool. It was the end of the world, and we were bored to death. And no matter how hot it got, Carly arrived at every party, every kickback in Johnny's basement, looking as if she'd come to life from the pages of a magazine on the naive wish of some juvenile boy. She never flinched at the temperature outside, never complained about dry mouth. We would debate how she managed to keep her hair straight and her mascara from running. The rest of the girls had given up on makeup and conditioner and eyeliner altogether, but not Carly. She appeared frozen in a time we were desperate to return to. When it became illegal to burn fossil fuels because the polar ice caps began to melt at alarming rates, all mail delivery was ceased. All air traffic was grounded. We stopped making cement, iron, and steel, which meant no more seawalls to keep cities like New Orleans from sinking into the Gulf. More than half the population was in the dark. No water, no electric, We were driven from our homes and into the streets. 
Turf wars turned into gang wars. Gang wars turned into county wars. County wars became the state wars. New Mexico turning against Arizona. Everyone putting up fences. It was every state and its designated water supply for itself. We took to the streets in rage and to the bedrooms of strangers in desperation. We're going to be okay, our fathers said, as if they knew the melting waters would never sweep us away. The irony of drowning in a drought was not lost on us. We grabbed light bulbs instead of umbrellas. We stole duvets instead of galoshes. Mothers abandoned their children. Husbands left their wives. We indulged and we consumed until we were fat and bloated with self-disgust. The end of the world, finally. The excuse we'd been waiting for. But no tidal waves leveled Manhattan. No tsunamis reached the Rockies. Our skin just got dirtier and our mouths drier. We used up everything we had in anticipation of the end, and still, it hadn't come. We wandered the streets looking for a leader, looking for something to believe in. The Great Lakes, they said, were an oasis. They're taking in those of us without solar power and providing clean water to drink, medical care and air conditioning. God, what we wouldn't give for air conditioning. Rumors began to circulate that the Great Lakes were, in fact, the last fresh water source left on the planet. But by then it seemed whatever wasn't on fire had been quarantined or reduced to ash and dust. Yet we were still here. No great rapture took us into the sky. The ground never opened to swallow us whole. We simply stood around thirsty and hungry and sweating unless you were fortunate enough to begin moving east before the fences went up. Then perhaps you found what you were all looking for on the shelves of our supermarkets, in the back alleys of our cities, and in the dark nightclubs of our weekends. When we told Carly we were leaving, that we were headed to the Great Lakes and wouldn't leave without her, she made love to us taking her time as though we were the last men and women left on Earth. She did it, we were sure, because she considered herself selfless. She did it because she believed we'd never make it as far as the lakes. She warned us of religious conversion, of the gasoline gangs, and of our greatest enemy, thirst. We heard the fences were barbed wire, then electric. But Carly said they were concrete walls with riflemen posted every hundred feet from Minnesota down to Missouri and all the way east to Virginia Beach. The Great Lakes officially sealed off. Almost. We begged Carly to come along, told her it wasn't safe here, that we could all be together, all of us, and she simply put her hands on our faces and her thumbs on our lips and looked upon us with what you might have mistaken for love but was most definitely pity. She kindly declined our offer. She took our hands in hers and led us to her father's basement and held out her arms at all that was before her and said, Why ever would I leave? I'm going to be queen. Took a chance 
of a plan But I bet you didn't think that they would come crashing down No